Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, once again, we bow before you. We are grateful for this opportunity to study your word together. We understand, we know our dependence upon you in every way that we could not understand anything if it were not for your grace and how your spirit helps us to understand what your word means by what it says. So thank you for attending to us in these things, Lord, especially in our time this morning as we deal with these very, very difficult truths. So thank you for what you have taught us thus far. We're excited about what we are to learn today. And so we pray these things because of our Savior, Jesus Christ, whom we love because he first loved us. His name, amen. I'll ask you to take your Bibles this morning with me and turn to our study of Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9. You'll want to turn to that passage, but you'll also want to keep a finger ready to go to the Old Testament book of Exodus as we walk through our text this morning. It's my desire this morning to to take us back to where we left off last Lord's Day, and that is verses 14 through 18 of Romans chapter 9. It's, it's pretty amazing how God works when it comes to the preaching of His Word, the teaching of His Word, and how God orchestrates these things in light of Sunday school classes and, and other things that take place on a Sunday morning and how that all links together. And as Reggie was up here this morning and he was telling us about the Gideons, he was quoting a verse from the prophet Isaiah, which I leaned over to my wife and I said, that, that's an interesting verse because I was thinking of that this very week in reference to this passage. And so I want to begin our time there this morning. And I think it's necessary for us to be reminded once again of the words of Isaiah as he writes to the ancient nation of Israel the words of God speaking through him in Isaiah 55. Beginning in verse 8, God says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Now, we understand that in that text, Isaiah is speaking on behalf of God, and God is both affirming and confirming to the nation of Israel that all that he has ever said to them, whether it be by means of commandment or whether it be by means of a promise or whether it's a blessing or a cursing, all of it 
will, in fact, accomplish exactly what God has purposed it to accomplish. In other words, since it is God's Word, it has an ironclad guarantee that it will happen. Now, that's an important truth for us to remember. It's an important truth for us to remember. It's an important truth for us to think about, especially when we come to any Scripture, but especially a portion of Scripture like the one that we are attending to this morning. God says in Isaiah 55, My thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not like your ways. And so that means that, beloved, we must take God at His word. We cannot attempt to squeeze God into our own limited understanding. We cannot think that God thinks like we think. So what seems so logical to us in our own thoughts is not how God thinks. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. And so our minds must be conformed to Him rather than Him being forced to be conformed to our minds. And that is a very important thing when we think of this current doctrine in which we are studying. Because to say that the doctrine of God's sovereign choice in salvation has been trouble for some would be an understatement. One of the greatest controversies in all of church history has been the doctrine that we know as the doctrine of election. It is the doctrine of God's sovereign choice to save those whom He chooses to save. Our own human history and humanity itself recoils in their own collective sinful rejecting heart when they hear that they can do nothing to earn their salvation. Our sinful heart hates and rejects the news that if any is to be saved, then they must be elect of God. And that is a struggle for us because on the surface, on the surface that appears to show an unrighteousness with God. We use the word unfair. God's unfair if that's the case. It's just not fair for Him to do that. If God saves anyone, especially those who cannot save themselves, then He must, He must, according to His own person, we say, He must save all of them or He is unrighteous. In other words, if God isn't a universalist, then He's a wicked God. And as we saw last Lord's Day, the word in the original language actually means that. In verse 14, what shall we say then? There is no injustice with God. That word there, adakia, means wicked or unjust or unrighteous. That God is wicked. 
And as we begin to look at this section, and as we begin to get into it some last Lord's Day, we begin to understand that Paul is dealing with two primary objections that flow from his his speaking in verses 6 through 13. Remember in verses 6 through 13, Paul was answering the objection that God's word must have failed, God's word must be not true if all Israel isn't going to be saved. He declares it in verse 6, for not all Israel is Israel. And the implication was from verses 1 to 5 that Not everybody in Israel is going to be saved. And if not everybody in Israel is going to be saved, then God's promises from the Old Testament must not be true. And God said through Moses and other prophets in the Old Testament that He promised certain things to Israel, certain unchangeable promises. He promised them to be a blessing to other nations. He promised them that they would have a land. He promised them that they would have a king on the throne forever. There were blessings given to Israel that if all Israel isn't saved, then those blessings must not be true. So, if all or some were not going to come, as understood in our own thinking, then God's word must have failed. And of course, Paul quotes the Old Testament showing clearly that God's word has not failed. Paul quotes, remember, in verses 6 through 13 about Abraham and the birth of Isaac and the promise being through Isaac and then also the birth of Jacob and Esau through Rebekah. But rather than just simply saying God's word hasn't failed... That should be enough, but more importantly, rather than just that, when it comes to Israel, when it comes to the fulfillment of those promises that God gave to Israel, what is most important is this very fact, the choice of God. It is God's choice that matters above everything. Not physical lineage, not being born as a a physical descendant of Abraham, but God's choice is what matters. And so Paul quotes those shocking words that we have in verse 13 that come to us from the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 1. And Paul says, notice just to remind us, verses 12 and 13, what was said to Rebekah. The older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. And so the next objection comes out. If that's true, then God must be wicked. If God doesn't love both Jacob and Esau, then God must be wicked. And again, Paul quotes from the Old Testament in verse 15. This time he's quoting from Exodus chapter 33 and verse 19. And he says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And the implication from that verse is this. God is not wicked. God is not unrighteous at all because according to his sovereign choice, he shows mercy to whom he shows mercy and compassion to whom he shows compassion. Those words still sound strange to us. 
Those words just in and of themselves, as Paul quotes them here in verse 15, sound strange even to our minds as much as they would have sounded strange to a Jewish mind until you go back to the Old Testament context of that verse. And we get reminded of some important details. So go back there for a moment, Exodus chapter 33. Because the accounting of this text would have been clear to any Jew that understood their own history. Because in Exodus 33, God is declaring to Moses this very reality. That while it is true that I should destroy everybody, while it is true that I should destroy all the people who are down there, not on this mountain with just you and me, Moses, I should go and destroy them all because of their sin of idolatry. Remember, they are worshiping the golden calf. Exodus 32. I should destroy them all. They are all idolaters. None of them deserve anything from me. They don't deserve any mercy from me. I should destroy them all. But I'm going to have mercy on some. Compassion on some. All of them deserve to be destroyed. But God promised to Moses that he would show Moses his glory. Moses says to God, I want to see your glory. I want to see who you are. And God promises that he's going to show him his glory. And that is seen through God granting mercy and compassion on those to whom he would express mercy and compassion. You see, it's not deserved at all. But God gave it to some. So there's no way that God could be charged with being wicked when He chose to love some. So that, now go back to chapter 9 of Romans. So that, verse 16 says, it doesn't depend upon man, the man who wills, or the man who runs, but on the God who has mercy. You see, being accepted by God does not depend upon our own desire. Being accepted by God does not depend upon our own efforts. In other words, it doesn't come by means of being deserved because of some kind of worthy merit on our part. It only comes on the basis of a God who has mercy. And so the clear implication is this in Paul's mind. Listen, God is not wicked. God is not unrighteous in his sovereign choice to save some. To love some and to hate others. Why? Because none deserve his love at all. So in verses 14 through 18, Paul having dealt with that first objection that God is Wicked because he doesn't love all. Jacob I loved. Paul then turns to the other side of it. Okay. This is what the heart of man does. Okay, if God is not wicked or unrighteous in just loving Jacob, then he must be unrighteous in hating Esau. 
And right there, we are confronted with a teaching in the Scriptures that is even more difficult for us than sovereign election. And some of you thought, how could that be? I didn't think there was a tougher doctrine than that. I didn't think there was one that stirred my heart more than that. Well, this one does. Because that God sovereignly chooses some and not others is, is truly a deep struggle for us. The, the doctrine of God's sovereign choice to save some and only some, that, that's a struggle for us. We, we struggle with that. And, and like I said a few weeks ago, you, you get to that place, you, you get to that place, you want all the loose ends tied up, they're not tied up, and you, you're standing there at that wall, what do you do? It's a struggle. You have to worship God there. But the next verses say something even more disturbing to us. Notice what verses 17 and 18 say. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. So then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. And it's right there in that last phrase that we have so much struggle. He hardens whom he desires. That truth is even more of a shock to our humanistic system of thinking and justice than he has mercy on whom he has mercy. Because it is the hardening reality that we hate so much. It is the hardened reality, the hardening thought, the, the reality of this hardening taking place from which the next objection comes. If God hardens, if that's what that means, then surely God is wicked. And as we look at this, I want us to remember Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. Have that locked in your mind as we see how Paul handles this objection. Notice how Paul begins. Notice verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. You can stop right there for a minute. For the scripture says to Pharaoh. That's an interesting phrase. This is why I said keep your finger back in Exodus because that quote is from Exodus chapter 9 and verse 16 and I want us to go back there for a moment. Exodus chapter 9, verse 16. Because this is very important for us. This is very important if we're going to grasp the, the understanding of of Romans chapter 9, verse 17 and 18. Because when you read the quote in its context, we read it in Romans chapter 9. Now let's read it in its context. When you read it in, the, in its context in verse 16, who is the one speaking to Pharaoh? Chapter 9, verse 16 but indeed, for this cause I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Who is speaking to Pharaoh? Well, in the, 
in the sense of two people talking, Moses is the one speaking to Pharaoh. But who is speaking to Moses? God. God. But Paul says in Romans 9 that the Scriptures speak to Pharaoh. Paul's an Old Testament guy. Paul was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Paul knew the Old Testament. Paul knew exactly what this text said. He knew the exact wording of this text. And yet, by the power of the Holy Spirit, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, in Romans chapter 9, he writes, The Scriptures say. So was Paul mistaken about it? Did he just have a lapse of memory? Maybe he just got it wrong. The answer to that is no. That's foolishness to think like that. Because we know that Paul is writing, as I said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And we know that God the Spirit never makes a mistake. So there's no mistake here. Why am I highlighting all this? Because it reinforces to us a very important truth about the Scriptures. The Scriptures are God's Word. They are God's Word. And so when you are reading your Bible and it says the Scripture says, or it says the Holy Spirit says, or it says Jesus says, it is the same as if it said God says. Now, why is that important for our study? Because many try to say in discussions about election. You get in discussions about election, and many people try to say that all this talk of election is simply born out of a difference of interpretation, or it's born out of just a matter of opinion. That this is just opinion. Somebody's opinion juxtaposition with somebody else's opinion. Or this is somebody's interpretation and somebody else's interpretation. And we, listen, the Bible really can't be interpreted anyway. But Paul is saying in Romans chapter 9, listen Jews, listen people, listen to all you who read this. I'm not giving an opinion about this. I'm not giving you my opinion. I'm not simply stating something I think is right. What Paul is simply saying is that I'm giving you exactly what God says and there is no higher authority. Therefore, to deny what it says is to clearly deny God. If God says it, then there's no more to be said. Remember Isaiah 55? My thoughts are not your thoughts. And so we must submit ourselves to the Scriptures. So that causes us to ask then, okay, what did God say to Pharaoh? What did the Scriptures say? What did God say to Pharaoh? First, the first thing it says is this, your continued existence is by my hand. Pharaoh, you need to understand something. Your continued existence is only by my hand. Romans chapter 9, verse 17, For this purpose I raised you up, it says. I raised you up. Now, 
when you think of that phraseology there, when you think of that terminology, do not begin to think that that means, for this reason I created you. I created you. Don't think like that. Raised you up does not mean created. It's a very popular thought among many people. In other words, God can't be just, He can't be righteous because He created Pharaoh for evil purposes. That's how the thinking goes. That's how the logic goes. Doesn't the Bible say that God hardened Pharaoh? Doesn't it say that God raised Pharaoh up for this very purpose? I.e., doesn't that mean that Pharaoh was created for evil purposes and then God must be unrighteous because He holds Pharaoh responsible for it? Maybe that's how you've thought in the past. Maybe that's how some of you think right now. You have a difficult time with election because of that very thing. You try to soften the words there. You try to massage those words in order to tie up the loose ends in your mind of how it all fits together, much like you do with love and hate in verse 13. And you say, well, Jacob I love, but Esau he loved less. You try to soften the word hate a little bit rather than leave it what it is. We don't have to do that if we simply take God at his word. And if we clearly understand what he said, and we take the implications of what he said to heart. So what does it say? So what does it say? Well, first it says in verse 17, for this very purpose I raised you up. The original term there for raised you up, that's the action word. That's the word of uh, movement. For this very purpose I raised you up. It doesn't mean what some of us might think it means or what we might be taught in the past. Like I said, it doesn't mean created, but rather it means to be allowed to continue. To be allowed to, be, to continue. To be allowed to stand. To remain. For this very purpose I allowed you to stand in this moment. I allowed you to remain in this moment. In other words, the idea is allowing someone or something to come about on the stage of events. For this very purpose, I allowed you to come about at this time on the stage of events. That is simply to say that your life, listen, is not happenstance. Your life, my life, Pharaoh's life, Moses' life, Israel's life, all of our, it's not just happenstance. God has allowed it all. In fact, I think you can see this clearly again when you go back to Exodus chapter 9. Now, I know we haven't read much in Exodus chapter 9 since I've told you to turn there a few times, but we're going to read a little bit here. Exodus chapter 9. I think you can see this, this reality that, that it's this reason that God has allowed Pharaoh to continue. Exodus chapter 9. We'll we'll just begin in verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, go to Pharaoh and speak to him. Okay. Here's what you're going to say. Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For if you refuse to let them go and continue to hold them, behold, the hand of the Lord will come with a very severe pestilence on your livestock, which are in the field, on the horses and on the donkeys, on the camels, on the herds and on the flocks. 
but the Lord will make a distinction between the livestock of Israel and the livestock of Egypt so that nothing will die of all that belongs to the sons of Israel. And the Lord set a definite time, saying, Tomorrow the Lord will do this in the land. Then verse 6, Moses must have went to Pharaoh, said those things, because verse 6 says, So the Lord did this thing on the morrow. And all the livestock of Egypt died, but of the livestock of the sons of Israel, not one died. And Pharaoh sent, and behold, there was not even one of the livestock of Israel dead. But the heart of Pharaoh was hardened. He didn't let the people go. And verse 8, then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Take for yourselves handfuls of soot from the kiln, and let Moses throw it toward the sky in the sight of Pharaoh. And it will become fine dust over the land of Egypt, and it will become boils breaking out with sores on man and beast and all of the land of Egypt. So they took the soot from the kiln. They stood before Pharaoh, and Moses threw it towards the sky, and it became boils breaking out with sores on man and beast. And the magicians could not stand before Moses because of the boils, for the boils were on the magicians as well as all the Egyptians. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Then Moses, or then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all of my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. Now get this, here's verse 15. This is the important crux. Because if by now, or for if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have then have been cut off from the earth. In other words, if I'd have done this already, you wouldn't even be existing. But, verse 16, indeed for this cause I have allowed you to remain in order to show my power and in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. Still, you will exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. I think you can see in the context, just by reading that context, that what, what it means to, to remain or to raise you up, as Paul says it in the New Testament. For this reason I've let you remain. For this reason I've let you continue in life. Uh, you, you, you need to be destroyed. You should be destroyed. I have every right to destroy you for who you are and your rejection of me as a God. And yet, I've allowed you to remain. In fact, it's kind of interesting back in chapter 5. Moses and Aaron come to Pharaoh, verse 1, and they say, The Lord... The God of Israel says, let my people go that they may celebrate a feast to me in the wilderness. And here's Pharaoh's heart. Verse 2. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? That I should obey his voice to let people go. I don't know the Lord. And besides, I'm not going to let Israel go. Now there's Pharaoh's heart to God. God says in chapter 9, you you should be destroyed. But I'm going to let you remain. So that my purpose, my power is seen, my purpose is accomplished. So I think it's clear. It cannot be that God created this. But rather that God allowed Pharaoh to remain on the scene. He allowed Pharaoh to continue in his life up to the point of Moses and Aaron and them coming and then leaving Egypt because we know Pharaoh lost his life soon after that. 
And at other times, or, and God's purpose was to be fulfilled by means of Pharaoh. Now, some of us will still have difficulty with that. You say, why? Because when you go to Exodus, as we are, and when you look through Exodus and you begin to read from chapter 4, where they begin their encounter with Pharaoh, and you read all the way through chapter 12, which is the, which is the Passover, when the Passover lamb is, gave an instruction to Israel, put the, put the blood on the doorpost and on the lentil of the house and be ready to go in haste because tonight the angel of death's coming and he's going to take the firstborn of all of the land of Egypt. So from 4 to chapter 12, all these plagues are happening and Pharaoh is still not letting Israel go. You notice that at times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And at other times, it says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And so in order to try to get God off the hook, we try to say that it is simply that God allowed Pharaoh to harden himself. But that's not what Romans 9 says. That's nice if we want to play fast and loose with the Scriptures. That's nice if we want to just go, okay, yeah, yeah, I'm trying to accommodate this loose end that I can't seem to get tied up. That's nice, but we need, to, we need to keep our minds and our hearts and our understanding where God says it is, what God says. Because it doesn't say that that way in Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9 says that he hardens whom he desires. And for those of you who are grammarians and who remember your 10th grade grammar class, that's an active voice. That's God doing something. God says of himself, he hardens whom he desires. It's God acting. So how do you reconcile that in your understanding? How do you reconcile God hardening yet Pharaoh hardening? How does all that work? The only answer to that is both are true. Both are true. You say, how so? Good question. They're both true in this way. They're both true in this way. Pharaoh hardened his own heart as he rejected God and his clear demonstration of his power. You can see that throughout. Who is this Lord that I should bow to him? And I'm not going to anyway. That's Pharaoh hardening his own heart. Rejecting God, turning from the truth, the, what, what he sees to be clear, the power of God right before him. And God hardens Pharaoh's heart by not restraining Pharaoh's own rejection. Let me see if we can see that principle in other scriptures. Let's see if we can see that in other places. Let's just do a quick search. Deuteronomy Chapter 2. That'll be the first place. Deuteronomy chapter 2. Israel is wandering. They send messengers in verse 26 from Gedemoth to Sihon to the king of Heshbon with words of peace saying, let, let, let us pass through the land. We'll travel only on the highway. I'll not turn aside to the right or the left. 
will not sell, uh, will you sell, um, you will sell me food for money so that we may eat and will give me water for money so that I might drink. Only let us pass through on foot. Listen, we don't want to cause you any trouble. We just want to pass through your land. We'll pay for whatever we use. This is all we want, just as the sons of Esau who lived in Seir and the Moabites who lived in Ar did for me until I crossed over the Jordan into the land for which the Lord God is giving us. But King but Sihon, king of Heshbon, was not willing for us to pass through his land. Why? Because the Lord your God hardened his spirit, made his heart obstinate in order to deliver. Why? In order to deliver him into your hand. You say, why did God do that? Because God was working out his purpose with Sihon, the king of Heshbon, to work out his purpose through him in order to work out his purpose with Israel. God was using Israel as a judgment process upon the king. And God was using Heshbon's hard heart in order to stir all of that up. Go to Joshua chapter 11. Joshua chapter 11. Verse 20. Joshua took all the land, verse 16, the hill country, the Negev, all the land of Goshen, the low land, the Arabah, the hill country of Israel, the low land from Mount Halak that rises to, towards Seir, even as far as Baal God in the valley of Lebanon at the foot of, the, of Mount Hermon. And he captured all their kings and struck them down and put them to death. Joshua waged war a long time with all these kings. There was not a city made uh, which made peace with the sons of Israel except the Hivites living in Gibeon. They took them all in battle, for it was the Lord to harden their hearts to meet Israel in battle. The Lord was using their own rejection of him to harden them so that they would attack Israel. So that Israel would be a judgment upon them in the hands of God and his purpose. Isaiah 63, Isaiah 63, Isaiah prophesying to Israel, especially about the end times and what would come with Israel in the future. Isaiah 63, beginning in verse 15, look down from heaven and see from the, your holy and glorious habitation. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds? The stirrings of your heart and your compassion are restrained toward me for you are our father, though Abraham does not know us and Israel does not recognize us. You, O Lord, are our father, our redeemer from of old is your name. Why, O Lord, do you cause us to stray from your ways and harden our heart from fearing you? Why do you cause us to do that? The idea there is why do you not restrain us? Why do you allow us to go the way of our own stubbornness? It's a New Testament reality as well. Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. Jesus is teaching in parables. Disciples say to him, why do you speak to them in parables? Why do you speak to him that way? Verse 10. 
And he answers and says to them, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. For whoever has, to him shall more be given, and he shall have an abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. Therefore, I speak to them in parables, because while seeing, they do not see. While hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. And in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is being fulfilled. What prophecy is that? You will keep on hearing, but will not understand. And you will keep on seeing, but will not perceive. Why? For the heart of this people has become dull. And with their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and return, and I should heal them. You see, on one side, in the Old Testament, you can see it, and it's both in the Old Testament, but but I highlighted one side, God not restraining. And here, it's them rejecting. Here, it's similar. God's not restraining. They're rejecting heart. They can hear words, but they aren't understanding the words. They can hear the gospel, but they don't have any clue about believing. Go to Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28, now the church has begun. Jesus has died, he's risen again, the church has begun. There's been much missionary journeys going on by both Peter and Paul and the rest of the disciples. And here Paul, he's on his way to Rome. Paul arrives at Rome in verse 11. And he's explaining to them what happened. Verse 26 says, when, it, when they had set a day for him, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus from both the law of Moses and from the prophets from morning till evening. And some are being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. You notice it doesn't say they could not, doesn't say they they. They didn't understand it. It says they would not believe. That's willful rejection of truth. They would not believe. And when they did not agree with one another, they began leaving after after Paul had spoken one parting word. The Holy Spirit rightly spoke through the Isaiah the prophet to your father, saying, Go to this people and say, and he's quoting the same thing we just read, You will keep on hearing, but you will not understand. You will keep on seeing, but you will not perceive. For the heart of this people has become dull, and their ears they are scarcely hear. They have closed their eyes, lest they should see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their heart, and return, and I'll heal them. Let it be known, he says in verse 28 to you, therefore, that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will also listen. In other words, the rejection of Israel of Jesus Christ was the door open to the Gentiles for Jesus Christ. God's ways, God's purposes, God's thoughts. It's not how we do it. 2 Thessalonians 2 says the same thing. Now there's an implication that God desires that we understand in all of that. If he does not, here's the implication. If God does not move to draw us to himself, if God does not react against us with the drawing of us to himself, if he does not act to restrain our own depravity, 
The only thing that we will do is reject Him and grow harder and harder and harder. That's who we are as people. If God doesn't restrain that wickedness, that's the only thing we're going to do. You say, well, I'm not so sure about that, Pastor. Really? Let's turn one last place. Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. You remember it from our study, I'm sure. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, verse 18, who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Because that which is known about God is evident within them. You say, how so? For God made it evident to them. How so? Because since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made. So they're without excuse. And so everybody knows God. They know of God. Just look around. Look outside. Look at what He's made. He's clearly on display. And even though they knew God, verse 21, they don't honor Him as God. They don't give thanks to Him as God. But they have become even more futile in their speculations. And their foolish heart is darkened. We could have even put the word hardened there. Their foolish heart is harder and harder and harder. They profess to be wise And yet they become fools. They exchange the glory of God for the incorruptible. Things in the form of birds and four-footed animals and crawling creatures. Harkens back to Exodus 32, doesn't it? Make us a God in the form of a calf. So what happens? Verse 24. That's the heart of man. That's depravity on the scene. Verses 18 to 23. That is depravity. Man rejecting God, doing his own thing, worshiping a God of his own making. So what does God say? Okay. God gives him over. God says, have it your way. I won't restrain that. He gives them over in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, that their bodies might be dishonored among them. Why? Because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And so you reject the supernatural, you reject the God who says, I deserve worship because I'm the creator, I created you and I created you for worship. You reject that, so what does God say? Okay, have it your way. For this reason, God gives them over to degrading passions. Verse 26. For their women exchange the the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, men abandon the natural function of women and burned in their desire toward one another. Men with men committing indecent acts and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Sounds like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sounds exactly like the end of chapter 11, Romans. Unless God had done something, we would be like Sodom and Gomorrah, it says. Why? Because God says, okay, if that's the way your depraved, rejecting heart is going, which is the way it's always going to go without my restraints, have it your way. Verse 28. Just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, there is no God. Atheism is rampant today. There is no God. 
It's rampant in our society and in our world. There is no God. They don't acknowledge God any longer, so God gives them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper. They are filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. That's our world, isn't it? Probably shocks us parents to see that in the middle of their disobedient to parents. With those sins? Yes. Why? Because it rejects the authority of God. It rejects who God is. It rejects Him. It rejects the worship of Him. It's idolatry because it's the worship of self. And although, verse 32, you know the ordinance of God, that those who practice those things are worthy of death, there's the deserving part. Everybody who fits that category, raise your hand if you're not part of it. We're all part of it. We deserve death. That's what we deserve. Nothing but destruction. And yet the depraved heart that isn't restrained by God practices those things that are worthy of death and they not only do it, but they give hearty approval to others who practice it. Listen, beloved, man is so bad, so lost in his sin that if God did not stand in the way, if God did not get in the way of our sin, if God did not drag us to himself, if God does not shine the sun upon us, then we grow harder and harder and harder. Not because God is wicked, but because we are naturally wicked. And we are God-haters just like Pharaoh. Go back to Romans chapter 9. God said to Pharaoh, God said to Pharaoh, your life is to be a demonstration of my power and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. What a great statement. What a great statement. It sounds much like Joseph in Genesis chapter 50, doesn't it? When he's speaking to his brothers, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. You say you sent me here, but God sent me here. And you read through Genesis from chapter 37 on, and you read the accounting of how Joseph got to Egypt. It wasn't the hands of his wicked brothers. And yet Joseph says, God sent me here. God wasn't, Joseph wasn't saying to his brothers, oh, don't worry about it, guys, you didn't do it. Don't think you're not guilty before God because God's the one. No, he's saying God used you, your wickedness. He didn't restrain that to get me to here so that we might have a way. God did it so that his purpose might be accomplished through me. Listen, God was using wicked Pharaoh for his purposes. That teaches us a great lesson, doesn't it? A great lesson that tells us at the very least that we can never say that God creates evil or does evil. God never creates evil 
He never does evil, but only that God certainly uses evil people. And we're all part of that prior to our salvation. We all are utterly evil. We may not exercise our evilness to the extent that we have the potential to exercise our evilness, but we are all evil and deserving of complete death. But God uses evil people to powerfully accomplish his purposes. So how does God do that? How does he do that? Well, one way he does it is by, like I said, removing his restraining influences. Removing his restraining influence. That is simply to say that mankind is not necessarily exercising the full extent of his potential wickedness. Now, that's frightening, especially when you look outside, you read the news, you hear the news across the globe where a guy walks into a house of false worship, but they were worshiping their God, and they die. If God were to remove his restraining influences completely, I think we're seeing some of that happen in our time. If God were to do that in one fell swoop, if God said, okay, fine, no more restraint at all, in a word, all hell would break loose. All hell would break loose. That's what it will be like when Satan's released from the abyss When God draws back his restraint, greater hardening always happens. So one way hardening happens is the removal of divine restraint. There's another way, though. Another way that further hardening happens because of depravity, and that's this. God brings about hardening, get this, through showing mercy to some. God brings about hardening by just showing mercy to some who don't deserve it. Nothing caused the Jews more hatred in their heart than to see Jesus and God himself be merciful to the Gentiles. Oh, they hated that. We're the people. No way is it somebody outside of us. We're the people. That stirred up so much hatred. Just the mercy of God upon one who supposedly wasn't God's people. The Pharisees hated Christ. Why? Because he spent time with sinners and publicans. Christ is merciful, they hate him. How dare you spend time with people like that? Why? Because God's mercy and grace and compassion is revolting to a depraved heart. It's revolting. The depraved heart says, how dare you show mercy to somebody like that? So Jesus, maybe that's what Jesus wrote in the sand in John chapter 8 when they brought out the adulterous woman and all the Pharisees marched her out. Maybe he just leaned down and said, yeah, what about you? Let's be clear. God doesn't have to create evil. He doesn't have to create evil. No, he just has to let evil be. Or he has to just show mercy. And it will bring about its own destruction. There's a third way. Third way. The law. The law. Uh, we, we think we love the law here in New Hampshire. We're going to find out how much we hate the law. 
comes chapter 13. You'll forget I even made that comment by the time we get there, but but when we, when we talk about it, you'll hate it. The law stirs up disobedience, doesn't it? You want somebody to walk on your lawn? Put a sign that says, don't walk on the lawn. That's why Pharaoh hated God. And the answer is the same for us. Why did God save us? So that he might demonstrate his power in us. And so that his word might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth. (laughs) God hasn't saved us because we're more worthy than the guy sitting next to us. Or the person that we think shouldn't be saved because they're such an evil person. No, he didn't draw us to himself because of that. He didn't grant us faith and call us and justify us because of that, because we deserved it. He didn't save us so that we could just claim to know Jesus and go back living the evil life that we came from. Just in a more softer way, a little less harsh evilness. No, He saved us so that we might demonstrate His power by changing us. And so that we might proclaim His name throughout the whole earth. I love it when it says that God chose Pharaoh to demonstrate his power. Because that implies, that implies that it took God's power to save us. God's power. Why did God save you when he did? Some people say, Why would God then allow me to go through so much trouble in life and and live the wickedness I lived before he saved me? Why would God do that? Because it was his perfect plan to save you when he saved you because it was then that his power was on display fully upon you. That's the only answer there is. So that you turn from your sin and believe upon Jesus Christ from the moment when it seems as if you would never do that. You were the very one who hated God just moments before and now you love Him. You didn't choose to do that. It took the power of God to do that. And he did that not for you or because of you or because you were worthy of something. He did that simply because he enveloped you in his divine purpose and for his own glory and he rescued you from the inevitable eternal hell. That's why he did it. Paul says, so then he has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. In other words, God is absolutely free to carry out his own sovereign will in his own way and whenever he pleases and chooses. Why? Because he is righteous. And we are not. Like Isaiah said, his ways are not our ways and his thoughts are not our thoughts. 
someone's going to say, then why are we responsible? We'll get to that next time. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for the clarity of it from the Old Testament to the New. For the way in which our depravity is clearly on display in rejection of you. That we're not in some neutral zone standing, waiting, and trying to decide what's the better path. Should I stay in this wickedness or should I go to this place where it leads me to some kind of heaven that I've made up in my own mind? No, we are all on the road to destruction. Unless you stand in the way, unless you rescue us, we are determined for hell. Lord, we thank you for having mercy on some when none deserve it. We know you were not unrighteous in loving Jacob and you were not unrighteous in hating Esau. And as we said, we should not be surprised that you loved or that you hated Esau. What should shock us is that you loved Jacob at all. What should shock us is that you love us at all. So help us this week to revel in that truth that your mercy is great. It is new every morning. And that because of your son, Jesus Christ, who sacrificed himself on behalf of all who he would ever save, we have life in him if we believe. Thank you for drawing us to yourself, causing us to believe, and securing us there. For it's in your gracious, merciful, holy name we pray. Amen.